following the 18-month period, he said, so how was the mediation? How did it go? I said, it was horrible. I felt bullied and vulnerable, and no one should suffer this way. I wish I could do something and not have people suffer this way. And he just simply said, as he was tuning the piano, well, why don't you go to SMU, Southern Methodist University here in Dallas, get yourself a certificate in mediation, and do it better. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life in Accounting. We are a podcast production of whereaccountsgo.com. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this podcast. Well, today we have a story of transformation and success. Dana Garnett joined us for this episode, and Dana has her own business as a mediator and conflict strategist. I met Dana while attending a conference, and I found it interesting that a CPA would and could use their business skills to eventually cross over into the mediation and conflict resolution field. So I wanted to find out more. As you're going to hear in this interview, Dana has had an extraordinary career in corporate America and actually overseas as well. And then she decided to take her career down a different path after she personally went through a struggle, specifically a divorce. Dana used this experience, though, as a catalyst to enter the field of mediation herself and now helps all kinds of conflicts using her expanded education in that area, as well as her personal experience, of course. It really is an interesting story. If you enjoy this podcast, please check us out online. You can find the show notes for Dana's episode at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Plus, of course, we have all our other 150 plus episodes at this point. Once again, it's all at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Dana Garnett. Well, hello, Dana. I'm so glad we got to meet in person. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Wonderful. Well, for the audience, we have Dana Garnet on the program today, and it was a wonderful coincidence that we were able to meet and schedule this. I was at a conference that actually I had primarily decided to attend because two of our former podcast guests were speaking at that conference, and one of those guests suggested that Dana and I meet. Dana has had an unusual career for a CPA. She's a mediator and a conflict coach, although she did you know, spend several years in some of the more traditional roles, but I wanted to bring her on the show because I wanted to talk about that transition specifically. So, Dana, before we get into the present day and that transition and that whole story, it's important we understand where you came from. So let's start at the beginning. What influenced you to decide to pursue accounting as a possible career in the first place? Absolutely. Again, just before I start to answer that, I just wanted to give a shout out to Dana Jansen, who put us together during the Texas Society of CPAs conference this last week, but much appreciated that. And I appreciate the work that you do, Mark. It's an interesting podcast series that you run. It's quite fascinating. And again, appreciate the chance to be part of it. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So how did I get started? This is going to be very quick about the beginning, beginning, but born in Baton Rouge, moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico as a child. I landed in Dallas about age nine and ended up having a love of the art, particularly ballet initially. I was dreaming of becoming a professional ballet dancer. Too many injuries by my teenage years precluded that. So I uh, began singing. I had studied piano for a long time. 
And I ended up going to North Texas State University, which is today University of North Texas in Denton, Texas. And I got a bachelor's degree in voice performance, um, primarily opera, classical study. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. And even during those years, it took me five years to get my bachelor's degree because I had decided I was going to be a vet. I loved animals and became a veterinarian, just seemed really interesting. But I took a few classes as a side year and decided that wasn't going to work for me. You know, some of the biology classes and the dissecting and stuff just really put me off to it. So I thought, no, that's not going to work. So this is about my junior year in college, in fact. So what do I do next? Because I knew getting a performing arts degree in voice didn't hold as much possibility for gainful employment. And I was, you know, I felt like, well, I'm coming into a very practical period of my life. So I asked around, went across to the business school and said, you know, what do you recommend for graduate study? And everyone said, oh, accounting. (laughs) (laughs) And so I said, okay. So I went across, literally graduated in May, summertime, the next term immediately, got into the accounting program and thought I was going to do it in one year. (laughs) <laughs> well, anyway, that didn't work because I needed a really thorough education. They were going to be like cramming two classes each semester into one. And so I took three years to get my master's degree. Um, but it was the most developmental period for me because, uh, and I chose audit over tax based a lot on what I'd heard other people talk about. And later on, I found out in auditing, I, I love working with people and I love being mobile and learning about different things and, you know, a new start. I love change. And that really worked for me with audit, as it turned out, and later on internal audit. When I was at North Texas or UNT, I had the greatest mentor named Ted Skeckel. And he really helped mentor me. I was running the accounting lab. There was a position that came open as a teaching assistant. So I began teaching principles of accounting 101 and 102. I later worked with Dr. Tom McClammer, who at the time was writing a new textbook in intermediate accounting. So I I began subbing for him and helping him edit his textbook. Dr. Bruce Koch was a great influencer as well. And then, of course, Dr. Ray Clay. Everybody may know Dr. Clay as having taught ethics for a number of years, but he's been a mainstay in the field of education and accounting and and another one of my inspirers. I mean, he's been inspirational to me, and I admire him as well and the work that he has done. And I actually got to reconnect with him only a few years ago after I had been living internationally for over 20 years, came back to the Dallas area. And because I was back in the state of Texas, had to get my CPE hours up again and saw him again in an ethics course. And it was a nice reunion. So I really appreciated reconnecting with him. So basically, that's how I came into accounting and did what everybody does, interviewed for jobs and went into uh, public accounting with Coopers and Librand. I had interned with them one of the summers when I was in school and segued into public accounting in that way. Wow. It's a small world. Ted Skeckel is in San Antonio, where I am. Yes, yes, yeah. he is. Oh, you know him. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. And we've just reconnected recently when I was speaking for the Texas Society of CPAs. Last year, he came to hear me talk and he went on to the University of Texas at San Antonio teaching accounting and another great educator and again, mentor. So yes. And when when you and I met just last week, I had also visited with with Ted and his wife and saw his daughter who I babysat (laughs) (laughs) when she was little. So we met for the first time as adults. So that was cool. 
Wow. Yeah, small world. I, I bet Skeckle actually at their golf tournament benefit that they throw for the accounting department there at UTSA. So, <laughs> wow. Oh, right. Wow. Excellent. Wow. Okay. Okay. Small world. Yeah. So yeah. you got started at Coopers and Librand in sort of a traditional audit role. How did your career progress from there? So when I was with Coopers, in fact, I started in the downtown office on big audits like AT&T and feeling a staff B on an AT&T audit is very daunting. But very soon after I joined the firm, they opened up the emerging business office at the Galleria in Dallas at the time. And I had the opportunity to transfer to that office and I loved it because I handled more quickly on what auditing was really all about. Because when you study it, it's one thing. You've got to practice it to really appreciate what it's all about. And I was working with on the audits for a lot of small businesses, family businesses. And it was interesting. It was much more people-oriented, and I began to pick up on some of the dynamics of these particular family businesses. And while you're asking for a sample of invoices, you might get the story (laughs) of what's going on in the family in that moment. And years later, reflecting back, one of the reasons I've chosen to focus on helping family and family-like businesses, you know, because of all those dynamics that are going on, and if something starts to go awry within the family, it affects the business and everyone's wherewithal is depending on that. So I really enjoyed those shorter periods of audit and moving around from place to place, varied types of businesses, banking, communications, tech, early age, unshare business. So yeah, it was fascinating. I really enjoyed that. And so about my senior year, I got headhunted as often starts to happen. And I found myself working for the Coca-Cola company in internal audit. And when I was first asked about doing an interview for internal audit, I was like, oh, no, not me, because then it was considered the kiss of death to go into internal audit because it was seen as this you know, lifelong career and you get stuck there as an auditor. And that was at least what people thought and what I heard in those days. And this particular headhunter said, nope, you're going to be on, I almost said auditioning, you're going to be interviewing for the Coca-Cola company and they, in General Electric, are changing the way they look at internal audit. You're only allowed to be in the internal audit department for so many, maybe so many years, two, three, five years max. And then you are placed into management from audit. And that's how they instill internal controls and more knowledge about the company ongoing. And so the Coca-Cola company today, and I imagine GE as well, over half of the financial people and then other management as well have, you know, come through internal audit, or at least at the time that I was there, that was the mode. So I thought, okay, that sounds great. So I was a domestic auditor for about two and a half years and then an international auditor for the remaining time of my five years on the, on the staff. So I audited anything from a syrup branch to, but at the time, it was the very last year or two when Coca-Cola actually owned Orange Groves because the Minute Maid brand was then part of the product line. And so Orange Groves and Orange Juice Manufacturing. And then I spent a lot of time at the corporate headquarters and Coke USA auditing just about every department that you could. And once I moved to the international team, that was fascinating. It was either a division office or a regional office or a bottling operation or a concentrate plant. I started out actually my first job on the road internationally. I was in Brussels initially, kind of borrowed from the domestic team. But my first job assignment was the Olympics in in Albertville, France. And from there, the Winter Olympics. And from there, just went all over Europe, ended up in South America and Africa. 
And my time to roll off the staff at that time, I landed in Lagos, Nigeria, as initially a financial analyst for the bottling uh, customer or the main bottler there. But I quickly found myself, I migrated into facilities management and building project management. That ended up being what I primarily did during the rest of my time with the Coca-Cola company. And working in Nigeria was fascinating. It was three years, very intense environment, but um, leaving was hard because you forge relationships quite quickly and quite deeply when you are working in that kind of environment. And a really special place in my heart for Nigeria and Nigerians, they've got to be some of the most resilient people on the planet. And what I learned from working there, I was running a building project of project manager for the company. And it was my first experience working with a team of professionals such as architects and contractors and structural engineers and mechanical electrical engineers. And it was fascinating. And that actually led to my moving to Brussels, Belgium to work on a larger building project with the Coca-Cola company. And I went from being facilities manager in Nigeria to facilities director in Brussels. And I'll pause for a moment in case is this going in the direction you would like it to go? And Oh, yes. This is fascinating. I Thank you. I'm curious, when you said you landed in Nigeria, and it doesn't matter that much now, I guess, because we're talking about many years ago, but was that, was that your choice? Could you sort of pick a place or is it wherever your last sort of assignment is that, <laughs> how much choice did you have? <laughs> That's a good question, actually. I'd say... Half choice, half, this is what's there. Okay. In fact, when my time came up to roll off the staff, as we called it, I had a two-month um, holding period. I was waiting to see what was available. And I had married, actually, one of the auditors at the time. So we were both now starting to look for work together. And I will always be grateful for the Coca-Cola company helping to place us both. In Lagos and in Brussels, we were both able to work independently in our own roles, but for the same region or division of the company, which is really great. Um, so yeah, so I ended up going to Brussels next. Do you wish for me to continue? Yes. Well, I'm curious. It looks like you got your start in training with Coca-Cola. And I'm curious if you got into training sort of because the opportunity was there and it was a fortunate accident and then you realized you like it and that's what set you on this path or was that more of a focused effort on your part? Yeah, yeah, I'd like to cover the rest of your time with Coca-Cola because it seems like that's key to your background. Oh, yes, thank you. Yes, and again, good question. When I got there, just an interesting side note, I just came, had come from Nigeria and the first meeting I attended was a security meeting because in Brussels, I was now head of security for our site. And we were in the process that the, the organization at that time, I stepped into a building project to build the second largest office location, if you will, in the world outside of the headquarters of Atlanta for the Coca-Cola company. It wasn't a second headquarters, but it was not the headquarters for Europe per se, but it was a significant move on the company's behalf because they were building a financial services center. And the FSC was a key, it was kind of a pilot concept in a way, and they were migrating, moving financial processing from outskirts, outlying locations throughout Europe to one location. That was the beginning of these service center concepts, at least within Coca-Cola and the finance world. And SAP was something brand new that was being implemented. And to create this, they needed a place, a hub to house everybody. And so this particular location not only housed the FSC, but it housed the local bottler, 
actually it was in the Betalux region, the key bottler there. And also a research and development was there. We had a quality lab doing sampling testing for the Coca-Cola company, various administrative roles. It was really a fascinating place to work. And, you know, Brussels, of course, being in the heart of Europe, it made sense to have that there. And these decisions were made before I came. But anyway, back to training, I was running the building project initially and managed the interior fit out. This was a interior fit out. This was a 450,000 square foot building that we were building on the same site where the bottling offices had already existed. And so we were literally imploding a building and building on the same site over a several year period. So it was a very interesting project. In the meantime, I did start doing some training and became a certified trainer, in fact, with the company. I was teaching, even before that in Nigeria, I was teaching finance for non-finance managers, which was really fun. I really enjoyed that. And then I began teaching an interview process called Target and Selection and became a trainer in these programs. So I was, tra- I was training trainers and I began teaching the train the trainer program. So I really enjoyed my training time then. and. To this day, a lot of what I learned in that time period has helped me quite a bit in my public speaking and the workshops that I run and working with my clients. So yeah, when I left, I actually early retired myself from the company only just a few months after 9-11, in fact. I had done what I needed to do for it. The company actually was going through a huge downsizing. Um, I'll pause there for a moment uh, before I continue. Is this helping to answer Yes, no, it does. And actually, it made a good segue into what I wanted to ask you about next, because I couldn't help but not miss your, quote, voluntary temporary retirement for 12 years before starting your company. And I think a lot of people would like to voluntarily, temporarily retire for 12 years and, (laughs) and come back into a career. So I guess, what were you doing during that time period? And yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about that before we get into the mediation part. Sure. <laughs> that is Absolutely. Sort of interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. When I was looking to leave my job with the Coca-Cola company, the it was, this was 2001. So like 2008, a global financial event happened. And overnight, a lot of companies were experiencing some financial challenges. And literally overnight, the Coca-Cola company worldwide, I believe it was like 4,500 expatriates worldwide positions were gone overnight. And for Brussels, we had about 100 expatriates and it went down to 50 overnight. So that was a huge shakeup for the organization. And they were offering very generous redundancy packages. So what happened with me, I was also in project management a lot and I love projects. I'm a connector and I love process driven things. So, you know, getting something started and figuring out how to get to the end game, backing up from there. What do we need to do to make sure that's successful? And I think that plays a lot in why I love mediation so much. You know, what's the problem? How can we, you know, work to fix that as quickly as possible? Um, not fix, but guide the process. So yeah, I was in that prime position to be offered a package. And I would add that Belgium and Belgians hold a dear place in my heart because our children were born there. And, uh, yeah, in fact, as a side note, they're twins, identical twins, and husband and I, and we're now divorced, but, you know, as a father and mother to these children, we were ever so grateful and will be forever to the medical care that we received in Europe between Brussels and the UK because our daughters suffered from a rare 
disease in the womb called twin transfusion disorder. And it was, or twin transfusion syndrome. And it was cured by laser surgery that was performed in the womb while we actually went to on a visit to the UK because our girl's dad is, is English. And so we went to a gentleman who worldwide had pioneered a treatment to help cure this syndrome with laser surgery in the womb. And we're not for the doctors in Belgium to have discovered this and treat it so effectively before we could get to that laser surgery stage, we would not have our girls today. And sadly, we could not have had this treatment done in the States because and we were consulting with doctors from the States on this. And the malpractice insurance that physicians are, are burdened with prevented them from even trying these techniques and these procedures. And we were grateful for the input we were receiving from a physician at UT Southwestern in Dallas by phone. We'd check in every once in a while and he was guiding us on what to expect next, but we were being treated in Brussels and London. And in fact, accountants will appreciate this. (laughs) At one point, we kept sending, well, my husband at the time was keeping track of all the records and stuff. And he was all, he's a chartered accountant out of the UK, the equivalent of the CPA. And this doctor at one point said, by the way, what do you people do for a living? You know, <laughs> he said, why? Because all of your notes and your spreadsheets, it just looks so, you know, it's like meticulous. Oh, yeah, we're accountants. <laughs> so as physicians, you know, we have a bad rap for our handwriting, but, you know, an organization skills aren't great maybe. But, but you guys really, you know, keeping track of the femur and the head circumference and all this stuff, it was quite interesting. But, yeah, so we were so grateful that our daughters were born in Belgium. I mean, between the people who are so gracious and the beautiful land there, nature is gorgeous in that part of the world, and of course the food, and the importance of having a meal together, you know, that's something that we lose sight of. So that's a reason why Belgium is very special to me. Um, So, yeah, I got this chance to leave with a great package. Wow. And I literally, yeah, so I took early retirement and became an expatriate trailing spouse. Because my husband stayed on with his role and he stayed with the Coca-Cola company until later he moved to one of the top 10 anchor bottlers in the Coca-Cola system. And I trailed his job all through that. I took us back to the States for a couple of years. But for the most part, our daughters, they were born uh, abroad, as we say in the States. And we moved to Morocco at one point. So they went to Montessori school, like between Brussels and international school at nursery school in uh, Morocco. They were only in the States for kindergarten and first grade. And then he got a great opportunity to work in Bangkok, Thailand. And so I followed his work and I was very fortunate, you know, uh, to be one of what you call it stay at home mom, if you will, but we weren't staying in, a, in the same country. <laughs> but, or, <laughs> or some, as some women at that time, we were calling ourselves domestic engineers. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it was privileged, I will say. It was a privileged lifestyle and companies took really good care of you. And I will say, even going, you know, working in Nigeria, for example, companies took good care of you because you were leaving all of your family and friends behind. It was hard sometimes for family and friends in your home country, not just if you're from the States, but any any country in the world. We'd all talk about this within the international circuit, that it's hard to understand, you know, what it's like to leave your home and leave your friends and your family to go work 
And so companies would make it attractive by you know, helping pay for home allowances or, you know, your rent or your car. And, you know, you had, you had travel expense money to go back to visit family, you know, or fly family to see you. I think it's tightened up a lot these days. Being an expatriate may not be as lucrative. However, you know, I hate that it might dwindle because the global life lessons I learned and the exposure to other cultures was critically important to me in developing my sense of, you know, we're not just here in our own little bubble. You know, we share this planet. At the end of the day, we're all after the same thing. You know, family is important and our environment in which we live is important. And the air we breathe, you know, the water we drink, everything, you know, there's a shared need that we all have in that regard. So, you know, yeah, I, so that's how I ended up transitioning from my corporate world to being that trailing spouse. And I ended up building our dream home in, New Me- in the mountains of New Mexico uh, near Santa Fe. Because of my experience running building projects, and I was a landlord, you know, during my time in Brussels, uh, we rented out half the space to the bottler, you know, as our customer. And I ran a lot of um, residential projects uh, while I was in in Nigeria. I ran the expatriate housing. So I was dealing with Nigerian landlords. We were the tenants at the time. But that flipped around when I was in Brussels. And then I ended up building our home, I mean, through contractor, of course, but ended up renting that when we went abroad. And it was just, you know, and we bought some properties in Thailand. I ended up renting those and selling them. So all the while, yeah. So I think one of your questions at one point was how did my accounting help me, you know, later on, you know, constantly falling back in my accounting uh, knowledge and just financial acumen in running properties and things like that. But that's, yeah, that's how I became the, the trailing spouse. Okay. Okay. And I just completely answered the question about why did you voluntary temporary retirement? So I volunteered to do that, but I was retired. I ran a performing arts studio in Thailand and oh. our daughters began to be exposed to the performing arts because uh, there was a really huge gap in kids. I mean, we were living in, in Bangkok, particularly about 1500 homes in a gated community around an international school uh, north of Bangkok. And so you have every nationality there. And a lot of the kids didn't have access to performing arts study as you might have had back in the States or in Europe or Canada, Australia, etc. And so I taught piano and voice and ballet and jazz dance to students. I had about 40 kids in my studio plus their parents and gave two recitals a year. And that was all fun. That was great. But transitioning to my work today, our marriage, we had gotten to about 20 years. In fact, we had just celebrated our 20th anniversary in our marriage. And it was the happiest of marriages. And even the children could pick up on that. But you, you know, you stay because you make it work and you're trying to do what's right. And as an expatriate, it's really hard. You're so transient all the time that just, just as you get settled somewhere, you have to pick up again and replant seeds. So, you know, maybe, you know, it's just you don't have time to sit long enough in one place to realize that things aren't really working well or you don't want to admit it. But anyway, it was just after our 20th anniversary that divorce hit and we went through a really, really bad divorce and the children suffered tremendously. From their perspective, they were what you call third culture kids or TCKs. They'd been living out of their home country because they were born, you know, they were, they were American and British, but never grew up in those countries. So they were born outside of their passport countries, living in a host country. They grew up in Thailand from age, let's see, seven or eight, they, uh, grade, grade two to eight in Thailand in an international culture. So a TCK is someone that's not growing up in their passport or home country, but they're also not immigrating to the country they're living. 
because their parents are there for work for a temporary period of time. So you're really, you're in a host country. So this international community starts to develop. And that's, a, it's like the third dimension. So that's why they call them third culture kids. And it started with military kids, you know, or missionary kids or diplomats kids. And then the adults who may have grown up in their passport country, but became expatriates as adults, they call us global nomads. And so here we were, the kids were, the girls were TCKs and we're global nomads. Well, when the divorce hit, a few other things were shaping this too, primarily that our daughter's interest in the performing arts. We were looking to bring them back to Texas to hopefully attend one of the top performing and visual arts schools in the country, which is called Booker T. Washington High School for the Performing and Visual Arts here in Dallas. They worked hard in their auditions. They got in. We were thrilled for that. But when they came back, they didn't come back. I was coming back home. But they were coming to a brand new country to live. Even though they visited, it's not the same as living. So their world really stressed at that time. They were entering ninth grade, leaving friends that they had known in Thailand, leaving this third culture kid environment, new school, didn't know any friends here, and their family was falling apart. So, and their mother, me, was having a very difficult time with what was happening. My world was falling apart. And I was really thinking, you know, about what will I do next? And I thought about running a business as for presenting, public speaking, interviewing, presenting oneself, because that goes to my performing arts background and training and teaching and all that. But when the divorce hit, it did so much damage, you know, for stress and emotion and health and financial loss. We blew through all of our savings that we'd had for the girls for college, which was $270,000 in legal fees, another near 30000 in therapy and you know, counseling help. And it was devastating. So when I got through that process, it all started and then I counted, I'm going to know dates, right? It all started, the period of time was between February 2013 and June 2014 was the period of the divorce. And when I was describing my mediation experience to, of all people, my piano tuner, who was coming by my home every six months to tune the piano, the third visit, that third six months, following the 18-month period, he said, so how was mediation? How did it go? I said, it was horrible. I felt bullied and vulnerable, and no one should suffer this way. I wish I could do something and not have people suffer this way. And he just simply said, he was, as he was tuning the piano, well, why don't you go to SMU, Southern Methodist University here in Dallas, they got a great grad program, you know, get yourself a certificate in mediation and do it better, you know, and then they have a master's degree program you could do. I said, what? You know, and I said, well, I can't do that. I'm not an attorney. And he said, you don't have to be an attorney to be a mediator. And I thought you did because we've had an attorney as a mediator. And so I, I was like, well, you're, you know, wait a second. How do you know all this? <laughs> you know? And with a smile, he just simply said, oh, I just tune pianos for fun. I'm a mediator. but based on that conversation I went to SMU I never looked back I started my first course within a few weeks of my divorce decree and it was the most cathartic experience and I came across a course called the neuroscience of conflict that fascinated me and I experienced during this period of study and I learned about alternative dispute resolution and I discovered that over time, I, over a very short amount of time, I have to say, probably within 18 months of my divorce, I was fully recovered from it because I had experienced what they call post-traumatic growth. And it was in part due to some excellent therapy I had gotten early on 
But during that time, I was also learning about some really fascinating social emotional intelligence skills that I use currently today in my work and as a mediator and a conflict coach. And it was these were paramount in my recovery because I, at that point, in this post-traumatic growth I experienced, I had not realized that really all that time I thought I was a victim of a bad marriage and a bad divorce and all that. In fact, I was contributing to my own misery. I just didn't know it. And, and actually, I, I've discovered what tragic optimism is as well. Rather than, you know, I'm now recovered and what do I do with my life next? I felt not obligated, but impassioned to turn around and help others not experience the same or make the same mistakes I had made in my divorce and help them recover quickly and not have to have it be, you know, going on for for years and years after all the resentment and the anger. Because I learned a lot about the physiological effects that stress have on us. And it's fascinating that, you know, we're not taught this kind of stuff in school. We don't learn about this in our society. It's starting to come more, I think, available now. And it, I hope one day it, we're trying to, you know, as a society, we need this in our school systems, uh, educating children in social emotional intelligence skills, how to resolve your own problems effectively and how to, I mean, my, my recovery was from codependency that I didn't even know I had. And, and not to mention that the, the PTSD I had suffered from my life, you know, shattered and falling apart and then the divorce and that fear of what's going to happen to me now because this life of privilege and lucrative lifestyle, you know, was gone. And then also I had not realized all these years I was suffering also from an eating disorder. And all of that was manifested from a sense of low self-esteem and low self-worth and very little self-love. So in this post-traumatic growth, I became realigned. I didn't just, I wasn't my old self again. I was this new aligned person in this new place of balance. And one of the things this has helped give me as a mediator is I can work very closely with people's intense, serious conflict. But one of the gifts I have, and I've learned to celebrate my gifts, I used to be very, you know, humble, overly humble, I should say. And oh, well, you know, we all have certain talents and gifts that we need to celebrate. And one of mine is to be able to look at the situation and see it objectively and truly not get hung up in it emotionally myself, not get drawn into it and have it become about how I feel about their situation. Because once that happens, we're no good in helping someone and guiding them to some resolution for themselves. So that, so I have, you know, a lot of my own experience and recovery has helped make me, I think, a very good mediator and conflict strategist and conflict coach for those who really want to get through their situation as quickly as possible. And I will add this. Yes, we spend a lot of, on legal fees. And yes, it can cost to have a divorce. It doesn't have to cost as much as it does a lot of the time. But you do need legal advice. I always recommend people get legal advice because I find that people get stuck emotionally and not knowing what to do because they don't fully understand their legal and financial options and all the resentment and the anger that's turning with it and the fear of what's going to happen to me, you know, all that need for financial security and emotional safety and all those things. You do need that guidance, but lawyers and, and financial advisors, they're not, I don't think they really want to, but they're also not trained to guide you emotionally. And so therapy has its place. And, you know, you can also mediate sooner than you might be led to that you can. You know, I mean, you don't have to go down a certain path and wait for mediation as the last resort, which is kind of the way it started out. There are different forms of mediation, different styles. And my style of mediation leans towards what is called facilitative and transformative. 
allowing people really to make their own decisions in a guided process rather than an evaluative style that is more about kind of advising along the way. And so I find that when people are guided through a process where they make their own decisions and they realize this is their opportunity to resolve their conflict for themselves, even if they're at odds with each other, it's, it's possible to do. I've had attorneys ask me after I've been allowed to speak to their clients for only 15 to 20 minutes at a time during a mediation, say to me later, what did you say to my client? Because in that short amount of time, you were able to get him to see her side and her to see his. We're going to settle today. We've been going at this for a year and a half. How did you do that? Wow. You know, wow. And it's all that neuroscience-based skill building that I did for myself that I use in, in the work. And people deserve that. They deserve to be freed from the stress and the fear and the anxiety brought on by serious conflict. Wow. Well, thank you, Dana, for sharing all that detail. Because actually, I was really curious how you know your career moved from accounting to eventually mediation, because not many of us get into that field. And I see you, you basically sort of went to the school of hard knocks for some of it. So <laughs> it, uh, yeah. it worked out well. <laughs> well, I do end every podcast with the same three questions. And in the interest of time, we probably better get to those. The first one's usually the easiest. From a career perspective, whether it was in accounting or mediation or training or facilities management, whatever part of your career, but from a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? I may have um, said this before, but I think becoming a mediator has been my proudest moment. And with by that, I mean discovering that ability to help people with their stressful turmoil or situation without attaching myself to it and making it about me and how I feel about it. And uh, you know, being the least important, the, the most patient person in the room or working with a situation, it's something that just comes up constantly for me. And no matter what people's situation is, it's so important to stay neutral and objective. And um, some say you can never be 100% objective. But being able to have that ability, it's like a paramedic to a scene. You know, you've got to have a, an ability to step in to something tragic and manage through it in a way that you're, you're totally focused and engaged in what's going on, but you are detached from it emotionally. And then need to be able to know how to process that later, you know, so you don't just take all that in and never know how to de-stress yourself, which is another thing I teach people about is de-stressing and, and finding balance again. Sure, sure. Well, second question, tell us about a lesson you've learned the hard way and tell us about the situation as well, because that's actually how we learn. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think in a nutshell, a lesson I've learned the hard way was most of my life, at least until I was 53 years old, and I just turned 59 a couple of days ago, I was chasing happiness by trying to please others and not knowing that I'm enough myself, you know, and I think, you know, the learning a lesson the hard way, that story about going through the divorce and contributing to my own misery, I felt like I needed to, you know, have my attorney fight for me and, you know, argue for me. And people will spend a scary amount of money and do detrimental stuff to their health, you know, trying to be right about something and not really knowing how to break the cycle of conflict. And then that that cost having this, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on a marital dispute, you know, and then you see your children suffer. And the, the way I did not know how to go through that to be there for my children, how to help them not suffer as much. I learned a lot there. 
that was painful to see what I was role modeling. But when I came to terms with that, I was able to get past that quickly too because of the way I had learned to process things. And I do like to say this though, the lesson I've learned is that it doesn't, it only takes one person to really shift a situation. And it was important that I needed to see the, the misery I was contributing, not just to myself, but to my children and my, my now ex-husband. But I will say that we have had a really good connection since. And, you know, it is possible to, that the rest of the story is possible to get along. And I admire him for what he has accomplished in his life. And uh, while we may have had a very sad into our marriage, uh, we are now in contact with each other. And we actually went on a, a family vacation together during this last spring, during our girls' spring break. And it was fun, you know, and it was, I think, a relief for our children to see that, you know, you can be a family because we're always going to be connected as a family biologically. And you can actually move forward. You can move on. You don't have to live in all that stress and keep it fresh. Well, last question, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? It's a good question. I would say that it was from my audit manager in Coca-Cola over the domestic staff, Joe Kostalnik. He once said to me, don't question other people's deals. And by that, he meant, you know, when, when you're looking at why does so-and-so get that over me, right? That promotion or that job or whatever, or, you know, why does so-and-so, you know, always get picked for such and such and I don't. Joe would say that, you know, and I use this in my work, we can't control what other people do, right? We really can only control what's going on with us. And the thing about no judgment really stems from that too, is that, you know, if we're so focused on what's going on with somebody else, we're pointing the finger outward, like, well, how come, how come? We're not really understanding what our contribution is to the situation. And we haven't really tapped into an awareness about ourselves and, you know, how objective are we looking at things, putting ourselves in the other person's shoes and trying to guess what's going on with them instead of just always pointing the finger outward and, and placing blame when we really need to take stock first of what's going on with us. And then when you focus on other people's deals or, you know, promotions or whatever, you lose sight of what's really, you know, what you need to be focusing on. Yeah. So when we're focusing on our own growth, you know, it goes back to, you know, we all need to grow in certain ways. And the emotional growth is just as important as anything else. And so growing emotionally and becoming balanced and aligned, it just makes uh, life a lot easier to manage. My, my mantra is, Happiness is not getting to a place in life where everything's okay, because there's always something to deal with. Happiness is knowing that whatever life throws you, you can handle it. And, you know, that self takes a lot of stress off of things. And not a whole lot triggers me anymore in my life. I remember, I have memories, so I remember things happening, but I'm not triggered by things where it takes me back to that time and place and I'm caught up in it as if it just happened yesterday, you know. I've really experienced a lot of emotional growth and that's what I want to impart to other people. You know, everybody can get there. And hopefully again, as a society, slowly but surely, we're going to learn how to do this at an earlier age so we can curtail the suffering, the unnecessary suffering that comes with, you know, growing up and living life. So, so Joe helped me with that initial advice and it stayed with me until this day. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time for this because we got a lot of good insights and, and you 
you know, not just your career, but your overall life. And, and I think there's a lot of important lessons in there. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time for the audience. Very welcome. It's been a pleasure, Mark. And thank you again for what you do. Well, that was our interview with Dana Garnett. And some of the takeaways that I personally have from this are, number one, all the opportunities that can exist if you have some flexibility when you work for a large multinational corporation. Dana worked for the Coca-Cola company for many years, and she had just a wonderful time, a great career. It sounds like it was really a fun ride. It sounds like she learned a lot during those years, and she really enjoyed it. And then secondly, I appreciated how open and transparent she was about the struggle in her life, the divorce that she went through, and how that turned into a positive and that it launched her into a new career path that she very much enjoys, the conflict strategy and mediation role that she's in now. She sounds like she really enjoys that, and and frankly, I'm very happy for her. That's very inspirational. There really was a lot of truth in the insights that Dana shared today, and I very much appreciated it. If you found value in this episode for yourself, once again, please check us out online. You can find us at whereaccountantsgo.com. Once again, that's whereaccountantsgo.com. We have the show notes for Dana's episode, of course, plus all our other episodes. Well, thank you again for joining us. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast, and we will see everyone next week. There's more to come.